thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. For all of your information, an original song by Ryan and Becky and... That, that will be one of the songs that we do for initi the initiative next week. So if you've not put that in your calendar, we would love for you to come out on Friday the 15th or Sunday the 17th to see what our worship arts ministry has been putting together. And um, I think they actually called that, I think the name of that song is called The Initiative, I think. Both Becky and Ryan walked away, so I, I think that's what it's called, I'm pretty sure, uh, appropriately named. And... It's a good setup for our message today, how uh, we've been considering the book of Galatians together for several months now, and as we come to our passage today, as Samuel read for us earlier before he prayed, we're finishing our study in Galatians today, and so um, it's exciting that we get to do that, and, and we're, we're finishing it at a good time as we approach the holiday, uh, the, the Christmas season, and as, as Pastor Mike will be leading us through various considerations about uh, what we ought to consider at this time of year, around Christmas time. We see in, in this song laid out in the, the book of Galatians, throughout the whole narrative of Scripture, what we see is God taking it upon Himself. He initiates by coming to us. Emmanuel, God with us. It's not our efforts in trying to please and reach God but it's everything that, that Christ has done. It's everything that God has done in taking on the initiative to reach us. God becoming a man. God living a life that none of us could live. God dying on a cross that should have been ours, being placed into a tomb should have been ours, but then resurrecting so that those of us who believe could have fullness of life, new life. We could become new creations. And as uh, Samuel was reading for us earlier, um, what we'll, we'll be considering today is, again, verses 11 through 18, Galatians chapter, chapter 6. And as we start uh, with our study today, looking at these final verses of Galatians, I just want to provoke all of us to consider what we've been talking about through our whole study of Galatians. And the reason why it's important for us to do that is, as we see the closing of this letter, Paul, I was talk, having a conversation with Samuel yesterday, and he made this comment, I'm like, oh yeah, that's true. But what we, what we see Paul doing in these last eight verses is almost recapping and re-emphasizing things that he has been, points that he's been making and things that he's been saying throughout his entire letter. So you look at verse 11, Paul says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. When you read through a lot of, of Paul's books, you see um, similar sorts of language that Paul uses and, and, and a practice that Paul and many other people at this time uh, in the world would, would do is that they would have scribes who would actually pin out the things that they were dictating out loud. And so Paul wasn't necessarily always writing down everything that we read in the, in the books, uh, in his letters in the New Testament. But he would have been speaking while someone was writing for him. A lot of people look at verse 11 and they use this as a proof text as to why Paul had such bad eyesight. 
And he had to, his eyesight was so bad that he had to have people writing for him. And then when he did write, he had to write with these big, huge Greek letters so that people could, un, so that he could see what he was writing down to make sure that it was clear when he was sending these letters out. And the reason why that might bear some significance, we'll consider here in a little bit. But really, most likely, what Paul is getting at, and, and what we could assume and, and take from verse 11, and why Paul was writing with such big letters, is it would be the equivalent of us today, um, maybe highlighting or bolding or hitting that all caps button on our keyboards or underlining it. What Paul is doing is he is, he is giving this weightiness of emphasis to what it is and how he's closing out his letter. It's as if he said all of these things that he knew the churches in, in the Galatian cities needed to hear. And as he's finishing this letter, he's like, here, give me that pen. And as he would do in other letters, it was almost like, a, it was almost like him giving his signature, his approval. Uh, during election seasons, we, we watch all these ads where someone will be on the TV and there will be an ad. And then what do they say at the end of the ad? My name is whoever it's about. And I approve this message. It's almost as if Paul is putting um, his seal of approval at the end of this letter. But unlike many of the other times that he does this, there's this extra added emphasis that he gives in writing large letters, with, with large letters. It's as if, as his scribe is writing these things out, he says, give me the pen. Or give me the quill, whatever, whatever they used back then. I need to recommunicate these things and emphasize these things to these Galatians and make it abundantly clear what we're talking about. They cannot miss it. And so as we finish our study in the book of Galatians, my challenge for me and for all of us as we study this last passage is that we would not be people who would miss it, but that we would pay close attention. The Spirit of God provoked Paul to make large and heavy emphasis at the end of this letter. And so let's listen. Amen? See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Now there's a lot here in this, this verse in verse 12. If you remember been going through us in our study of Galatians, and if you haven't, uh, what, what Paul is getting at here, and the, the biggest rebuke, the biggest criticism that he had in, in this book is addressing these, the legalistic mentality and attitudes of these people who were called the Judaizers. They were these men who were going around to these new Gentile uh, cities where, where there was churches that had been planted there, and it was particularly especially bad in these Galatian cities of Lystri, Lystra, Derb, and Iconium. And these men were going around and saying like, yes, we believe in the cross of Jesus. We believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that he did come to fulfill everything that's written about him in, in the Old Testament. And that's all good and fine. But if you really want to be righteous before God, you need to do a few of these things. And the big issue that it's obviously addressed uh, by Paul earlier in the letter is, is, the, is the issue of circumcision. Y'all need to get circumcised. You, you need to do some of these things that are, that are, that are according to the Mosaic law and, and the Abrahamic law so that you will be good and righteous before God. And, and listen, listen how Paul rebukes these people and the, and the attitude that he's calling out in them. 
It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. It's as if these, these Judaizers wanted the Galatians to be circumcised so they could, this is what David Guzik says, so that they could wear the submission of these Gentiles as a badge of achievement or as a trophy. Like if they have these Judaizers, whoever they're sent by and who's funding their ministry, they, they can report back to people in Jerusalem and say like, yep, this week we got 13 circumcised this week. It was a way for them to be able to boast about the things that they were accomplishing. It, it, was, it was a way to be able to keep some of these new impressionable Gentile believers in a place of submission to them so that they could control the way that they acted and the way that they worshipped and then have some sort of power of influence over these people in order to maintain a semblance of control. Look at verse 15 in chapter 6. Paul writes, For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. Now, we see here that it's the, the, it was these Judaizers, uh, it was their selfish ambition that made, these, that, that made these people want to compel or to force these people to become circumcised. And there was nothing inherently wrong with being circumcised. I remember the first time that I, that I was really paying attention, reading through the book of Acts when I was a younger man and really studying it and looking at it. And you get to chapters uh, 8, 9, and 10 where you get this incredible move in the narrative from Saul persecuting the church to Saul being saved to then Saul becoming a Christian who's making disciples and then starts his missionary journeys. And after he does some missionary journeys, you see this argument that starts to formulate in Paul's ministry. And it's the argument of, what role does circumcision now play? Should it play a role in the, in the church? And in chapter 15 of Acts, you have this argument that's, that, that's drawn out and it's spelled out at the Jerusalem Council where all of these uh, leaders and, 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 and I guess you could say ranking or, or higher up of people of importance in the, in the first century church having a conversation in Jerusalem, the church in Jerusalem, and they're making it a determination of whether or not Gentiles who believe in Jesus are now supposed to be circumcised. And the conclusion that they come to is no, they don't need to be circumcised. And Paul, Paul talks about this throughout all of his writings the issue of circumcision specifically. But in Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 3, look what happens. Paul also came to Derb and to Lystra. These are two of these Galatian cities. And a disciple was there whose name was Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, the other Galatian city, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And so he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, maybe like me, just as I've read this, you at one point, as you were reading some of these passages, thought, wait, how is it that Paul could so passionately and vehemently argue against this necessity for circumcision Fight, going, getting into the trenches and fighting on behalf of these new Gentile believers and, 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 and not allowing this, this association between being good and, and being circumcised with being righteous before God. How could he then in turn go and say, Timothy, we need to get you circumcised, buddy. Sorry, man. Well, look, I'll re reread it again and look at the emphasis as to why Paul does this. 
Paul wanted Timothy to accompany, to accompany him, and so he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. What, what was Paul's custom when he would go into a new city? We, we, we see through the book of Acts and the way that Paul talks about himself in the letters that he is commissioned by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul realizes this about his ministry, that he, he knows that he's supposed to go to all of these different cities and be instrumentally useful by the Holy Spirit for the kingdom to plant churches in all of these Roman cities so that Gentiles can come and believe in Jesus Christ. But what was his custom? When Paul would go into a new city, where would be the first place that he would go? To the synagogues. So that he could reason with the Jewish leaders of that city, looking at the Old Testament, reasoning from the scriptures how Jesus Christ is, in fact, the fulfillment of all of these things. And so if, if, if Paul could win an audience with the Jews and then be used by the Holy Spirit to convince them of how Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, that would be a great launching pad to be able to make disciples of all of the Gentiles, as many as who would hear and who would come and believe, making disciples of, of these non-Jewish people. That was Paul's custom. And so Paul taking Timothy, seeing him as a man who had a good reputation in, in Galatia, among these Galatian cities, as a man who he had a he had apparently had a close and, and very easily developed affinity towards. They got along well. He, he saw him as a child in his faith. He's like, look, I know you're not going to like this, Timothy, but this is necessary. You need to get circumcised because you not being circumcised could potentially prevent us from having a foot in the door when we go into all of these cities so that we can minister to the Jews and then use that ministry as an opportunity to, to share the gospel with everybody else. Now, maybe some of you are thinking, like, well, how would they know if he was circumcised? Don't ask me that, okay? Just don't ask me that. Don't let your imagination run amok either. I know I just, I just set you up for it, but don't worry about it, okay? But, 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 but my point is, is that we, we're not saying, what Paul is not saying is that circumcision, you know, it's, it's bad, what he's saying is, is that this, whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised does not matter. And in the, in the 21st century, we're like, yeah, Drew, we get that for sure. That's like, that's fine. We don't, we don't struggle with these ideas. That's fine. But imagine if you are a Jewish person in a Greek Gentile setting in a city, and there's this big issue You've been raised Jewish and you've heard your whole life and centuries and generations of your forefathers, this has always just been a given. This is, this is just like a bare minimum requirement thing that you can do in order to, to have some sort of association with the God of Israel. And now in this, this, this new follow, the, the people who are following in the way of Jesus Christ, now this thing is being proposed to you where you're like, that actually doesn't really account to anything. Paul had this argument over and over and over again throughout his entire ministry. In Galatians 3, he already addressed it in verse 7. Now then it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And there, so there's neither Jew nor, nor Greek. In Romans chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, uh, Paul writes, A Jew is one inwardly, and, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So his praise is not from man, but from God. So, so those who are circumcised of heart are people who would be considered right before God. I know that this is an, maybe an easy concept that I didn't need to spend so much time talking on, but Paul 
makes a heavy emphasis on this. And, and it was circumcision for them. And I think there's a lot of topics, and I won't, I won't press all of our buttons today by mentioning specific ones, but I think you can just imagine. There's a lot of topics that come up amongst people in the church where they are not matters of primary doctrine. They're not, they're not hills to die on and, and to disassociate with one another. But we treat them like that a lot. Depending on your take on certain issues in the church, we, we tend to be divided on certain things. And so whatever those things are that we tend to make of primary importance while belittling or, or at least maybe putting aside the cross of Christ, we cannot let these things overtake us because none of those things account for anything. But it's about having hearts that are circumcised before the Lord. Look at verse 13. Paul continues, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. Paul says, man, even these people who are trying to do this so that they'll have a showing in the flesh, they'll, they'll have something to report back to their leaders to have something to boast or brag about, they themselves don't even keep the whole law. They don't do what the law requires them to do. They just harp on a few things that the law talks about, and then they can just very outwardly and obviously show that they've done it and say, I'm good because I've done this one, these, one, these two or three things that are more obvious, I've done those, and so I am righteous now. Paul's like, they don't even keep the whole law. They don't, they don't, do, the, they don't do what they're actually telling you to do. And that's the point of why Jesus came, because none of us in our own flesh could ever write all 613 commandments or 413 commandments up on a board and then go a check mark through all of them and say, kept it perfectly, kept it perfectly, kept it perfectly. That's the only way that we could be right before God apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Paul says, they can't do it, you can't do it. And he says, no, this is not the way that we should be communicating and even trying to depict what it means to be in a right relationship with Jesus, to be in a right relationship with God. We are saved only by the work of the cross of Christ. And look, look what Paul says at the end of verse 13. They desire to have you circumcised so they may boast in your flesh, but, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to this at the end. I think this is of primary importance in this text. So we'll come back to that to, 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 to make our boast in nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. And the by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. What Paul is saying is that there's nothing more worldly than trying to make a good showing in the flesh. There's nothing more fleshly, there's nothing that's more sinful than trying to make what you're doing in the flesh look like it's actually righteous before God. This is why Jesus had most, his harshest words were reserved for the people who were the religious leaders of the time. The, 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 most, the most harmful sin for the world and to the church is people who are pretending and acting like everything that they're doing is, is righteous and good and holy and, and, and you have something to boast about, when in fact it's all done out of pride and for selfish ambition. Jesus, by who he rebukes, 
Paul, by the way that he's talking to these Judaizers and, and, and admonishing the Galatian churches, they, they make this point that I think we can safely assume, that there's really probably nothing that's more harmful for good and proper doctrine, for right living before God, than self-righteous, legalistic mentalities. We talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning with our Young Families class. And when we read these stories about the Pharisees and, and, and Jesus is rebuking them and there's all these harsh words, we, we can easily look at that and be like, oh man, Mike, Mike Parso, we kind of talked about this earlier today. Oh man, these, these silly uh, legalistic Pharisees, uh, thank, thank you God that we don't have to deal with that anymore. We don't have to deal with like these Pharisees who walked around with their long robes and all their prayer beads hanging off and they would enter into the marketplaces and, and receive their love greetings. Oh, look, it's Pharisee Drew or whatever. And they would give these long, pretentious prayers that people would look at them and be like, wow, he's so godly and spiritual. And then they would receive offerings and they would manipulate uh, vulnerable people, the widows, the devour widows is the way that, that Jesus says it in Luke chapter 20 for selfish gain. He rebukes these Pharisees in Luke chapter 16, calling them lovers of money. Like, thank, thank you, God, that we, don't, that we don't have to deal with that kind of thinking anymore. I, would, I, would, I, I said this to our class today, and I will submit this to all of us this morning sitting in this church. For those of us who come to church every week and who are really involved and all of our kids go to every activity and you're the first person that shows up, at every, if the church is open, I'm going to be there. Like that, that. I would submit to you that we are more inclined in that camp to have a Pharisee sort of struggle than a tax collector sinner kind of struggle. We very much like these Judaizers, it's easy to look at this and be like, oh man, like these Judaizers were horrible people because they tried, to, they tried to make good works the point of being right before God and they diminished the cross. I'll speak for myself. I, I do this all of the time though. When I, when, when I fail to do things the way that I'm supposed to do and so I feel guilty before God and I feel like there's a timeline of, of how long that I need to feel bad about what I've done before God will actually receive me again or if I meet with enough people this week or if I, if I have gospel conversations with enough people and if I, if I do enough as a pastor and if I, can, if I can do it all in such a way that when people see me, they're like, wow, Drew's working so hard or he's trying really hard or he's doing all these really spiritual and amazing things and then that is what makes me right before God. This is Pharisee thinking that I struggle with. How do each of us similarly struggle with, these, with this Judaizer Pharisee kind of thinking? Let's address it. Let's let the Lord address it in our hearts and minds so that it will stop infiltrating the way that we witness to a world who needs to see believers loving each other the way that Christ loved us so that they'll see us and that they'll give glory to God. There's nothing more worldly. And look what Paul says. Look what Paul says. This is incredible. The end of verse 14. The world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And if you remember, we, you know, I said this earlier, the conversation I had with Samuel. Paul is alluding to a lot of things that are all throughout this book, all throughout the book of Galatians. So circumcision, that goes back to Galatians chapter 3. But this this idea of him, the world dying to him and him dying to the world really draws us back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. 
I have been crucified with Christ. Think about that for a moment. It's no longer I who live. But it's Christ who lives in me. And this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and who gave himself up for me. But then in, in chapter 6, Paul doesn't just say that I have been crucified, like I have been crucified with Christ. He takes it one step further, other than just I've died to the world. He goes further by saying that the world has been crucified to me. We've all heard, we've heard the phrase, um, like if you're talking about somebody or maybe you hear, you would never say anything like this, of course, but you've heard other people that would talk like this and say like, oh, this person is dead to me. Who's heard that kind of a, you've all heard, okay, you don't raise your one one hand. I know all of you have heard it though, okay. Thank you, Kevin, yeah. (laughs) This is is the way that, that Paul is talking about the sinful nature of the world. He's not talking about people in the world, like all these people, they're dead to me. He's talking about the system of the world, the fleshly and sinful ways of the world. And this is, this is pure Paul here that we're getting, guys. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, imitate me. Why could Paul say, why could Paul give this intensive a command? Because I'm imitating Christ. That's a hard thing to be able to say with a clear conscience about ourselves. But I would argue we should be able to say that with a clear conscience about ourselves. If we're following Jesus Christ and we're making him our most passionate and primary pursuit, we should be confident enough to say just, just you're struggling with really what it means to live for Jesus Christ. Hey, just walk with me. Follow me because that's what I'm doing. I'm not perfect, but that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing. So let's just, just follow. This is not pride in the way that Paul is saying it. This is him in humility saying that I have given everything to Jesus. And, that, and now he says this, all of these things in the world are dead to me. I don't, I don't put any weight in those things. And even as I stand up here preaching this to all of you, I want, I please, I know, I know that I'm standing up here and I'm like, like two feet above all of you and I'm talking at you and y'all are sitting in lines listening to me. Please don't think that I'm up here and I'm saying this is an authority of I have arrived at this point where the whole world has been crucified to me. I don't even care about the things in the world. Last night, I said that, and Beto just smiled, and I was like, she's smiling because she knows me better than anyone else does at this church, and she knows how much I have not crucified the things of the world in my own life. And so I say this as an address for all of us, and something for us to challenge each other in. But we should be able to stand alongside Paul and say, no, these systems, these things in the world, the the ways of thinking, as he said in chapter 5, don't sow to the flesh, but sow to the Spirit. And he, and he talks about the fruit of the flesh, which is all sorts of wickedness and dissensions and, and, and sexual proclivities that don't align with what is righteous. But then he says, so to the Spirit. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? And the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit that he gives are what we're supposed to pursue as Christians. And it's as if Paul is saying, like, yeah, that's, that's what my aim is. And I've suffered for this, guys. I know how hard it is. And we'll talk about that in a moment. And, and, and the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. What a bold declaration. Look at verse 17. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. 
In, in 2 Corinthians, we get Paul's personal testimony of suffering. In verses 23 through 29, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23 through 29, look what Paul says about his own sufferings. So he's speaking about these super apostles who try to make themselves seem more uh, high than they are. And he says, are they servants of Christ? Well, I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, guys, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger uh, from false brothers, danger at sea, in the wilderness, in the city, dangers in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, listen to this, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I mean, you read that and you're like, whoa, how could he say the, how could he say, how could he talk about things like joy and peace? And we'll, we'll explore that in a moment. And he says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul is not boasting about how he's the most faithful Christian. He's saying like, look, anything that you've gone through, anything that you're going through, I get it. And I'm sorry, I, I, I get that. But, but I am, I know what it means to be weak, guys, is what Paul is saying. But what does he say in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? When he's talking about this messenger from Satan, this thorn in his flesh that he asked God to take away three times. Jesus said, no. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And so then what does Paul say? Therefore, I will boast all the more in my weaknesses, so that his power, so that the glory of Jesus Christ will be made evident through him. Jesus uh, suffered. And now Paul is saying that I bear the marks of Jesus. Paul suffered. And in verse 17, he's saying, cut it out, guys. I don't want any more trouble from you Judaizers who are trying to manipulate the gospel in order to serve yourselves and avoid persecution. There's this other component that we haven't talked much about, but in, in, Samuel taught me this yesterday, but in the first century, the, the way that Jews were allowed to operate in the Roman Empire, they were given um, a lot of passes from all sorts of things that people who were under the Roman rule were required to do. Judaism was a sanctioned religion of the Roman Empire. And so there was a lot of dues that Jews wouldn't have to pay. There was a lot of requirements that didn't fall on Jews because of the fact that they were participating in a religion that was sanctioned by the Roman Empire. And so you have these Judaizers who, you know, and some of them, you know, they, maybe they did really believe in the cross and they really did believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but it was about their plus theology. They wanted to add everything else to it because they saw what, they, what could be gained from it. Man, if we can align this new way, this Christianity, the ways that they refer to it, followers of Jesus, if we can align this with Judaism, then we can both be 
right before God by believing in the cross, but we can also still be like a sanctioned practicing religion under Judaism so that we don't have to do all of these things in accordance with what the Roman Empire tells us to do. And so we get the best of both worlds. And Paul's like, guys, cut it out. Cut it out. You're, you're missing the point. I bear the, the marks of Jesus Christ. We're going to suffer for the Lord, church. Maybe you won't be shipwrecked and stoned and beaten with rods or uh, left hungry and naked and, and ashamed and exposed. Maybe you won't literally go through all of those things. But I can promise you, in a world that, rejects, that has rejected God and that celebrates things, of fleshly, the things that are fleshly in nature... If we are doing this, if we are dying to the world and the world is dead to us, the, the system of the world, we love the people, but the sin that's in the world, the systems, the things that corrupt our minds and deceive us and that lead us astray, if we die to those things and then we live for Jesus Christ, that is going to cause tension as we try to operate in the world. And that tension will result in us suffering. Now, in America, we maybe don't understand the extent of the sort of suffering that does happen today in this world. And I think we can be guilty of thinking about other parts of the world, and those are just like other Christians. They are fo there's followers of Jesus Christ who are in the body of Christ, who are our brothers and sisters in Christ, who, who are living in countries in certain parts of the world where they are literally going through these sorts of persecutions and sufferings that Paul went through. They are being beaten and torn away from their families, and thrown into prison, and executed, and beheaded. And, and with guns, and, and knives, and machetes held to their throats, they're being asked to, re to, to, to renounce the name of Jesus. And they're saying no. And we're not even willing to live in America in the 21st century, and then be willing to be a little bit uncomfortable in our workplaces, and, and, and in our schools, and in whatever environment that God's placed you in, and stand out for Jesus Christ. It, it's it's going to lead to a little bit of discomfort and suffering and persecution for us. And basically right here, Paul is saying, so be it. So be it. Look at verse 15. Or you talked about verse 15. Look at verse 16. And as for all who walk by this rule, everyone say rule. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now this word rule that's used in the original Greek is, um, is canon. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with the phrase the canon of scripture. Uh, this word canon, it's used as a, it, uh, we see this as early as the beginning of the, of the second century, like 100 A.D., it was used for a summary of orthodox Christian doctrine in the early church. So canon, often called the rule of truth or the rule of faith, it, it represents the core theological convictions prevailing in the local churches throughout all of the church's history. Now, obviously when Paul wrote this, he didn't necessarily think of the way that the word canon would be used by the church for centuries after he wrote it. But as we know, the Spirit of God provoked Paul to write this. And God knew exactly how this word would be used by the church for centuries and centuries. But, but canon, when you hear the phrase canon or the canon of scripture, this just refers to the 66 books that we have in our Bible. And I've, I've had this conversation with people. Maybe there's, you know, in a room full of like, I don't know, 
300 people right now. I'm sure that there's non, I'm, I'm positive there's non-believers in here. And maybe some of your reasons for being non-believers is that you're a little bit skeptical. I've had this conversation with people before where they say like, how, I don't believe in the Bible because the Bible is just a list of books that was compiled by men who also wrote it, men wrote it, and it was just arbitrarily thrown together by these committees of men who just wanted to have something to, to hold uh, power over other people and manipulate vulnerable and impressionable people so that they could have power for centuries and centuries. And the first thing that I would say to that is that's not how the first couple of centuries of Christianity worked. I mean, they were literally being persecuted and were dying and you know, going through the sorts of sufferings that Paul had to go through, except at a much larger degree. But what we talk about, when we're talking about this idea of canon, um, I don't know if we have any people who work in construction. Um, I don't, I'm a pastor, obviously, so I don't work in construction. But, I, but I'm really good at watching YouTube videos and then trying to, like, DIY that at my own house a little bit. But one, one thing that a lot of people will use in construction is that they'll use templates. So if you're, if you're working on a line or if you're working on siding outside your house and you're working on a certain angle, uh, a lot of times people who work in construction will use templates. And that template can help you just get a uniformed and consistent cut or mark on whatever next piece of material that it is that you're going to use. And this word rule that's used, the word canon, it literally means uh, it's this idea of it being a measuring rod or a standard by which to live by. And so it's appropriate that we refer to these 66 books as the canon of Scripture. It's, it's the rule. When we study church history, I mean, we look at the process that our church fathers went through and vigorously, with great detail, and I mean, we're talking about thousands of hours of accumulative work, of, of looking at the historicity and, and, and like, how historically accurate are these books? And how theologically accurate are, are these books when we corroborate them with each other? And, and when we see how throughout history, how churches would copy down all these manuscripts, which books were generally read in, in more traditions, which ones weren't. There was an intense process that these, men, that these men went through in order to have what we get to hold in our hands today. 66 books of the Bible that are organized chapter and verse so that we can have the benefit of now, even in digital form, being able to just look it up easily and then have the Word of God minister to us. It's amazing that we have such a privilege to be able to do that in the 21st century. But this word rule, the cross of Jesus Christ, his primary boast, he says, if anybody wishes to receive peace and mercy, let them also walk in this in this rule making Jesus cross your boast understanding that you could never do anything in and of yourself to earn salvation but it's rather believing in Christ and what he has done to afford and purchase it for you and then it's realizing that these things have been given to us freely out of the grace of Jesus Christ and then acting accordingly. We are not saved by our good works, but we're saved so that we can walk in the good works that were prepared in advance for us to do. This is the rule. And peace, this holistic peace that touches every single corner of, of the life of the believer, despite your circumstances. It's the word shalom that was used in the Old Testament an all-encompassing peace that touches every corner of your life as a believer, despite 
how difficult your circumstances are. And remember, Paul was an authority on this. He went through all these things and he could still say peace. He, he, don't be anxious about anything. Well, we know that he had the anxiety of the churches on his heart and mind. He says to the church in Philippi, don't be anxious about, about anything, but in everything with thanksgiving, by prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, all human understanding, will, this is a promise, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And mercy. And then he mentions, great, look at verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. It's a perfect way for Paul to wrap up this letter where he, he incites his readers to think about the grace of Jesus Christ. And I love, I love talking about grace and mercy. Really, they're, they're two sides of the same coin. But grace, the word grace is unmerited favor from God. And so basically, it's getting something that you don't deserve. So if grace is getting something that you don't deserve, mercy is not getting something that you do deserve. So let's take these concepts of grace and mercy to finish our time by focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ. I know, I know for a lot of us, um, and, and this, is, this is certainly true of me, it has been true of me in the past at least, that when I would read things in 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul writes, for we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns, I'm like, why don't we just proclaim the Lord's resurrection until he returns? Why do we have to proclaim the death? And why, why do we make... Why do we make the cross of Jesus Christ our boast when we could make like the empty tomb our boast? Because isn't that like, isn't that like the good stuff? Isn't that, isn't that like what we're supposed to rejoice? Yeah, absolutely. We should rejoice in the resurrection. I mean, it's, it, if I stood up here and said, no, you should yell at me and say you're, bla you're blasphemy. No, like yeah, we should rejoice in those things. So then why would Paul say that our, the thing that's centrally in our, in our viewpoint, the thing that we make our greatest boast in, be the cross of Jesus Christ. When we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, considering grace, we see Jesus on the cross. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, he, put, he was put in our place so that we could receive, unmerited, by the way, we could receive his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Verse 21, God made him who knew no sin become sin. Jesus hanging on the cross so that we might become the righteousness of God. When we make our boast and our focus in the cross of Jesus Christ and we consider mercy, we see Jesus hanging on a cross and we realize that is what I deserved. Remember, grace is not getting, grace is getting what you do deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. We see Jesus on the cross and we realize that he is in the place that I deserved to be in. Hallelujah. We ought to make the cross of Jesus Christ our boast. And there's three things that happen if we live as people. There's for sure more than three. There's my fist-sized brain came up with three things, okay? But there's three things that, that are great benefits and that are the fruit of us making the cross of Jesus Christ our boast. If we keep the cross of Jesus Christ central in our, in, our, in our focus, if we keep the cross of Jesus Christ in the place that it's supposed to belong, if we make that our primary pursuit, this will definitely help in us being legalistic and thinking about ourselves more highly than we ought to. This Judaizer mentality, this legalistic mentality, this self-righteous mentality that 
obviously it did plague the Galatian church, but it plagues each and every single church that exists today. It plagues our church. It plagues my life. I've seen it plague, and I won't say any specific people in here, but I've seen it plague a lot of y'all's lives in here as well, as well as mine. And if we keep Jesus on the cross central, not, not like we're always just feeling horrible about how he's saying, no, we keep, we keep the sacrifice of Jesus and what he was willing to go through on our behalf central. This will always remind us that there's nothing that I could ever do to earn salvation and therefore, any good work that I find myself engaged in and, 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 and participating in, it's only because of his grace that I get to do it. He's like, well, what you, Paul says only boast in the cross. Well, Paul literally says, I boast in my weaknesses. To the church in, the, in Thessalonica, he says, we boast in you. He's like, we boast about you, about the fruit of our, of our labor. He, he talks about rejoicing, or it's the same word for rejoice, exult, boast, rejoicing in Romans chapter 5 in the glory, in the hope of the glory of God. So what, is, what, do you, what do you mean? Paul literally boasts in other things. Yeah, but it all falls under the cross. If we make the cross our primary boast, then the way that we think about our weaknesses, we'll, we'll say, thank you, God. This is an opportunity for your power to be perfected in me. When we do bear fruit from our lives, we won't see it as something for us to brag about, that it's my own doing, but we can say, thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross and you gave me an opportunity to minister so that you could produce fruit through my life. Wow, how gracious that you would involve me in your work. I don't deserve that. When we make the, when we make the cross our boast, it humbles us. It keeps us thinking correctly about it. About, about good works. It keeps us in a place of humility. And, and thirdly, and I would argue most importantly, it always causes us to remember that it is God the Father who will be glorified. If I'm going about just the daily uh, duties of my life and I'm going about all the things that I have to do from, from Sunday to Sunday on any given week, and I'm making the boast, I'm, I'm making my boast in the cross of Jesus Christ, people will see me, and they won't just see how great Drew is and everything that he's doing, but according to Matthew chapter 5, I will be allowing my good deeds to shine before men so that they will give glory to God who is in heaven. When we make the cross of Jesus Christ our boast, it will cause other people to give glory to God to receive newness of life in Jesus and then we can walk alongside them and, and then they will start to make their boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. This is the template. This is the rule. This is what Paul is provoking the Galatians to consider. It's not I, but it's Christ in me. The life I now live I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that Jesus hung on the cross. And Lord, with, with an attitude and a heart of rejoicing and with gratitude and, and with thankfulness, would help us, provoke us to make our boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us to rejoice in the cross, to exult and to celebrate 
what was accomplished for us on the cross. Humble us, Lord. Help us to rightly prioritize things in our lives. And as a result, help us to live in a way that would cause others to give glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, I hope you all have a wonderful week. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And we'll see you here again next week. Hope you enjoy your Christmas seasons and have a good week. We love you.